Hello and welcome to Hugh's Joy of Food, a bite-sized podcast celebrating all that's amazing about everything edible, from the simplest snack to the fanciest feast. I'm Hugh Smithson-Wright, and this week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I'm reviewing Stevie Pyle's Little Oasis of Joy, the aptly named Joy at Portobello, telling a listener what's actually expected of you when you're asked if you'd like to taste the wine in a restaurant in Ask Hugel, and spreading the love of butter in Treat of the Week. Each week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review a restaurant in some way, whether it's one I've actually been to recently, or a home delivery, be that a ready-to-eat takeaway or a make-at-home meal kit. First, a disclaimer. My job as a restaurant PR and consultant means that I'm paid to promote the interests of the handful of restaurants I represent. If I feature a client on this podcast, I'll make that clear, like I do on my social media channels, and in all cases, I'll make it clear if all or any part of a meal I review was complimentary. You can rest assured that everywhere I review, I recommend. This show is about the joy of food, so if you're looking for vicious eviscerations, this probably isn't the podcast for you. With that out of the way, it's time for this week's review. When it was announced this week that restaurants would be allowed to open again from the 12th of April if they have outdoor space, my thoughts turned immediately to Flora, the restaurant at Chef Stevie Pyle's wonderfully named project Joy in Portobello, West London. It was one of the first new restaurants to open in London after the first lockdown ended last July, and one of the first I rushed to and then back to again and again, such was the joy it brought me. Stevie Pyle and I go back some years. He was one of my first clients when I started my business several years ago, and we worked together for about a year on his restaurant, cafe and bar Craft on Greenwich Peninsula. We already knew each other socially before that, but over the course of that year we became good friends and I've followed his career and his fantastic food avidly ever since. There's something poetic about the fact that Stevie's latest venture is on the same site as his first, Doc Kitchen. Doc Kitchen was a wonderful restaurant, much lamented, which served an ever-changing menu which roamed the world nomadically for inspiration. One week you could be eating a sensational biryani, the next exquisite hand-rolled pasta but underpinned by Stevie's almost fanatical devotion to seasonality and using small suppliers with a story to tell. The gorgeous canal-side location with a huge peaceful terrace, perfect for sunny lunchtimes and balmy evenings, just added to the magic. I know that I was far from alone in being tremendously excited when it was announced that Stevie was returning to the site with something new, albeit temporary, in the form of joy. Not just the restaurant Flora, but also a produce market selling fruit and veg from Canterbury's The Goods Shed, and a mini deli selling, among other treats, honey from Stevie's own bees and a selection of wines. Joy's menu is less mercurial than Doc Kitchen's, largely because Stevie's mission with it was to give a bit of stability to suppliers who'd been affected by the pandemic as restaurants tentatively reopened, or in Joy's case, opened for business. I know some eyebrows were raised when a dish from Flora started appearing on Instagram consisting only of a plate of raw vegetables, untouched by chemicals or apparently human hand, with a knife to trim them with and a pool of smoked codsrow to dip them in. I've often said that the bravest thing a chef can do with an ingredient is to barely touch it, but this is really taking that to extremes. Of course, out of curiosity, I had to order it, and they were some of the sweetest, crispest, purest tasting vegetables imaginable. It didn't hurt that they looked like Peter Rabbit could have just stolen them from Mr McGregor's garden. One of the stars of the menu was Lockdown Lobster from a chap who, immensely resourcefully, started selling lobsters usually destined for restaurants direct to the public via social media. 
At Joy, it's barbecued, then served draped in lardo, that ethereal, satiny pork backfat, and bathed in rosemary butter. Kraken-sized, I ordered this on every one of my various visits, and never left so much as a scrap. Another dish I love beyond measure is wood-roasted chicken, stuffed with ricotta and served on toast with bitter leaves. It's an homage to a dish at San Francisco's famous Zuni Cafe, which I was lucky enough to visit on my honeymoon, and I can attest that Stevie's rendition of it is every bit as good as the original. Other highlights of many, a sweet tiny clam cooked in sherry and butter with guanciale, that's smoked pork cheek, a refreshing salad of watermelon, feta, chilli and mint, and simple, satisfying veggie dishes like grilled courgettes with grains and slow-cooked borlotti beans. Desserts fall into the a little of what you fancy category, a bowl of exquisite chilled cherries, strawberries with a little cream and meringue, and a hearty homemade pie with whatever stone fruit's good that day, or rhubarb. Clever, comforting stuff. Over the course of the summer I visited Joy as often as I could, and every time I was absolutely captivated by how alchemically everything came together. Sitting on the shaded terrace eating lockdown lobster with a bottle of the rather lush Sanso Rosé they served on tap was truly a moment to cherish. Now, of course, at the moment, Joy is closed due to lockdown, but not only is the shop part very much open for business, if you live within 15 miles, which is a pretty huge catchment area, you can order for delivery from a very impressive selection of wonderful fruit and veg, free-range meat, fish, charcuterie and dairy, as well as fresh pasta from Stevie's Pasteo restaurants, a weekly changing ready-to-cook three-course dinner menu, and boxes containing everything you need for a roast dinner for four. Every Friday, Stevie chooses Friday flowers, generous bunches of a single variety, perfect for brightening up your home in the same way as Joy was brightened over the summer months by huge displays of hundreds of dahlias, which Stevie gave a home to after the Chelsea Flower Show was cancelled. And much as there's hope on the horizon for restaurants generally after this week's announcement, a little bird, okay, Stevie, tells me that I might dare to hope that Joy will be back too, subject to his being able to extend the lease on the site. I hope the landlord knows just how much Joy would be welcomed back, because what we really, really need after the past year is more Joy. To find out more, and perhaps order something from the shop, visit Joy at Portobello. Dot co dot uk Each week I answer a listener's burning culinary question in Ask Hugel. This week's question comes from Ian in Merseyside who says Hey Hugel, when I'm in a restaurant and I'm asked if I'd like to taste the wine, what exactly am I expected or allowed to do? I'm very much into my wine, I'm confident about what I like, although I'm always open to trying something new, and don't mind spending money on the good stuff, but this little ritual always throws me. Can you tell me exactly what I should be doing, so that next time I'm in a restaurant I'll know? Ian, thank you for your question, not least because I think there will be plenty of people listening who have always wondered that too, but been afraid to ask. I had my own views on this, But just to be sure, I ran my thoughts on the matter past wine expert, former sommelier and UK ambassador to the global wine list guide and app Star Wine List, Ruth Spivey. I'm delighted to say we were broadly in agreement and I'm indebted to Ruth for her insights. You've hit the nail squarely on the head, Ian, when you say that this is a ritual. I'd wager that in the vast majority of restaurants, even the staff, while trained to ask someone, 
usually whoever appears to be the host, and tiresomely, usually a man, whether they'd like to taste the wine, probably aren't entirely sure why they're doing it and what response to expect. And when they do ask someone, usually a man, they'll swirl the glass, sniff it, take a sip and say something like, oh yes, that's splendid, and the waiter will take their cue and pour. It's so ingrained as part of ordering wine that we never really stop to question why we're doing this and whether we can or should say something other than, oh yes, that's splendid. Not that is until now, because Ian has asked the question that we've probably all been dying to ask ever since we've been old enough to drink. Times were, not all that long ago, that if restaurants served wine at all, it was bought gradually over several years and stored in an actual cellar, maintained to a greater or lesser degree of professionalism by a sommelier, a trained wine specialist. Stored properly, wines should improve, or at least maintain their quality, over time. Just occasionally, it could happen that the cork would perish or shrink slightly, allowing air in and the wine to become oxidised or corked. So when wine was opened, the sommelier would first of all inspect the cork to check if it was intact, then pour just a little of the wine, after first decanting it if that was thought necessary, into a glass which they, not the customer, would then smell to make sure the wine wasn't corked. They might then take a tiny sip, just to make sure that the wine was as it should be, and then pour it. The guest's only involvement was to drink it. Now, over time, as more and more restaurants, fewer of which had sommeliers, started selling more and more wine, of perfectly drinkable quality but stored for much less time, if at all, and natural corks began to be replaced with first rubber corks and then the now ubiquitous screw top, it became much less likely that wine would be corked. So the need to even smell the wine, let alone taste it to check that it's okay, became all but redundant. But no one seems to have sent restaurants that memo, and the practice pointlessly continued, rather like the Japanese soldier who didn't know that World War II had ended, and ended up defending his post in the jungle alone until finally surrendering in 1974. But continue it has, and probably will forevermore. So let me tell you, Ian and everyone, what to do when you're asked if you'd like to taste the wine. Actually, let me start with what's not expected of you when tasting the wine, and that's to act like you're at a wine tasting. You don't need to swirl the wine, inhale deeply, suck air through your teeth, and pronounce sagely on its notes of just-ripe gooseberries, petrichor, and ennui. All that you're being asked to do is to confirm that this is the wine you want, and that it's okay to drink. So before the wine is even opened, far less tasted and poured, check that the wine that's been presented to you is in fact the wine that you ordered. This is especially important if you're ordering a wine of which the restaurant has more than one variety or vintage. Mistakes can happen, and if you're served and accept the wrong wine, it can be expensive. The renowned steak restaurant Hawksmoor famously made light of the situation when one of their managers accidentally served guests a wine with a similar name to the one they'd ordered, but worth many times more. They didn't blame either party but not all restaurants would show such largesse, and nor are they obliged to, if you had the opportunity when shown the wine to point out it wasn't the one you ordered, but didn't. Once poured, with one quick sniff you will know if there's anything actively wrong with the wine. If it's corked, it'll smell musty, stale, unpleasant. It's at this point that you can say, handing the glass back to the sommelier if there is one, or waiter if there isn't, I'm not sure, but does this smell a little off to you? They'll either agree or they'll seek a second opinion, and in most cases, without demur, the bottle will be replaced. If you do taste the wine in addition to smelling it, you should also take the opportunity to judge whether it's at the right temperature. 
If it's a white and it's not cold enough for you, ask for it to be taken away and chilled for a while. If it's a red and it's a little too cold, ask for it to be decanted or warmed slightly. It's your wine now, so you can very reasonably ask for it to be served at a temperature you enjoy drinking it at. A quick taste of the wine is also an opportunity to make sure that it fits its description in terms of body and character. You should be able to tell straight away if the dry white wine you ordered is actually on the sweet side or the full-bodied heavy red you asked for is actually on the thin side. Now's your chance to flag this up. Again, you can raise this as a question. The list said this was dry, but it's quite sweet. Do you think so too? They might not agree, but it's better to have the conversation now than on the third bottle. Bear in mind that as with food, you can't always tell at the very first sip whether you like the wine. Most wines from House Planck to Aubryon develop with a little time in the glass. But also, as with food, remember that a restaurant's not obliged to change a wine that you don't like, but there's nothing wrong with. If after a few sips, no more, you're really not enjoying the wine, do ask for the sommelier. They're your friend in this situation, and they just might change the bottle for something else. Ultimately, though, If you've got the wine you ordered and it turns out you don't like it very much, well, lesson learned for next time, but you still need to pay up. So there you have it, Ian. Check the label, take a sniff, taste for temperature and whether the wine's as described, and point out politely if anything doesn't seem right. It's that easy. Or at least, it should be now. If you'd like me to have a go at answering your food-related question, you can tweet me, at hrwrite, or send me an email to hrw at hughrichardwright.com. For my final segment, Treat of the Week, each week I share something food or drink related that's been putting a smile on my face. This week, a new story from Canada caught my eye about a fast-spreading belief that Canadian-made butter has become harder during the pandemic. Apparently, Canadians everywhere have started to find their domestic butter doesn't spread or melt like it used to, while imported and organic butters do. While farmers and scientists haven't yet got to the bottom of why this might be, or even whether it actually is happening, or whether it's just perception, one theory is that it's due to palm fat being added to dairy cattle feed to make them produce more milk to meet the demand for more butter created by lockdown. The story alarmed me because I couldn't bear to think what I would do if I suddenly found myself unable to enjoy one of my all-time favourite foodstuffs. Yes, my name is Hugh, and I'm a butterholic. I'm on a low-carb diet at the moment. I won't bore you with the details, because there's really nothing more tiresome than someone talking about their fitness regime. But let me tell you that giving up bread and potatoes, and even my beloved crumpets for their own sake, is the easy part. What's hard is not having access to them as vehicles for butter. So many of my favourite foods are favourites precisely because they can be buttered. Lavishly buttered toast. I genuinely don't care much if it's white or brown, rye or sourdough, as long as I can't see the surface of it for butter. A brace of toasted crumpets with so much salty butter that it oozes through the holes and onto my hands, one with marmite, the other with bitter marmalade. Saurine malt lave topped with butter sliced from the block to a thickness about half that of the saurine itself and just laid rather than spread on top. This is a perfect example of what those dairy-loving Danes called tansmoor, literally tooth butter, butter that's so thick your teeth leave their imprint in it. 
Spring is my favourite season for food for the simple reason that it heralds the appearance of both asparagus and Jersey Royals, both of which are elevated even above the near-perfection nature affords them by the addition of a knob of butter. You could even do as I did last year and take another of spring's bounties, wild garlic, and add that to butter to then add to your asparagus and spuds for the seasonal foodie full house. Butter isn't just great on things, it's fabulous in things too. My late father would always add a knob of butter to baked beans as they cooked, and I'm pleased to say that the habit didn't die with him. It makes the sauce silky and thicker too. The same is true for dal. Sticking a couple of slabs of butter under the skin of a chicken is my foolproof technique for ensuring the crispiest golden skin on a raised chicken every time. And a knob of butter, gently sizzled until brown, what chefs call bernoisette, with a few capers added, makes a gorgeous simple sauce that's perfect with pork chops and fish. As for which kind of butter, well, I'll confess, I tend to have a few in the house. Sainsbury's make a farmhouse butter with molden sea salt, and that's my favourite for spreading on toast, crumpets and the like. I like unsalted for cooking and adding to vegetables. And although it's a pleasure denied me at the moment, on my semi-frequent visits to Paris, I like to troll épicerie like Maison Plissant or Bon Marché for wonderful unpasteurised French butters like Echiré and Isigny, which have a salt content that would make a cardiologist shudder. You can find versions of these in supermarkets here, but there's nothing quite like French butter bought in France. The best all-rounder I've found is good old golden creamy salty Kerrygold, reassuringly available everywhere. If you're only able to have one butter, then I'd say this is the one. I'm of an age to remember when butter was, unfairly in my humble opinion, deemed undesirable, I guess because of its fat content. Low-fat spreads which claimed to be as good as, or in one case unbelievably not, butter, were hailed as being the best thing to put on your bread. I'm glad that that view now seems to have fallen from favour and butter, real butter, has been restored to its rightful place in the pantheon of dairy produce. Once this diet's done its work and I've shed enough of the Covid kilos, my first blowout will be a packet of crumpets and a block of beautiful butter. But for now, you are going to have to spread the love for me. Just before I go, I'd like to ask that if you're in a position to, you'll consider supporting one of the many brilliant charities working tirelessly to ensure that children, disadvantaged families and the homeless don't go hungry during the pandemic, such as Magic Breakfast, Fair Share, Street Smart and the Trussell Trust. That's it for this week. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet me at hrwright or drop me a line at hrw at hughrichardwright.com and I hope you'll join me next time for more of Hugh's Joy of Food. <laughs>